So if you've been with us, you know we just finished a series in Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is one of those great books of the Old Testament. It kind of gives you what the Old Testament is. It's human, it's gritty, it's hard. There's adversaries and enemies. There's overcoming, there's victories, there's defeats. There's all of that. There's wisdom on how to live life because this was real people who really went through life and prayed and sought God and got answers. So you have all that in Nehemiah. But if you're with us to the very end, it ends in chapter 13, bankruptcy. It's just fail. So you read these books in the Old Testament and they have that theme. You read and they're like, yeah, okay, hooray. And then failure, right? The entire Old Testament ends in failure. It's in Babylon. It's like, okay, what's the deal here? You, you read it and, you, and you, it's hard to understand it at times, right? So many of us have made the declaration that we're gonna read through the whole Bible in a year. You ever decide to do that? You ever quit writing numbers? You just get body slammed by numbers? Like, okay, that's it. I'm not doing this, I'm done. Because there's just like, what, what am I reading right now? Why am I reading this? And there's almost a misunderstanding of what, what are those first 39 books doing? So today we're starting a series called The Gospel of the Kingdom. And it's an absolute brilliant title. And I plagiarized it. It comes from Jesus, that Jesus gives us this title of the gospel of the kingdom. So to introduce this, we have to back up just a little bit, and that's what we're doing today. So if you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 4, the first gospel of the New Testament. Right when you're done with the 39 books of the Old Testament, you come to Matthew. And Matthew gives us clarity on what the Old Testament is doing. And so we get an introduction to the gospel of the kingdom by Jesus in chapter four, verse 23. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus here is actually giving us an outline of what's gonna happen in the next section of Matthew. He's gonna teach the gospel of the kingdom and then he's gonna walk it out step-by-step step what this inbreaking kingdom looks like. So if you know chapters five, six, and seven, we call the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus goes up on a mountain and he teaches. Jesus calls it the gospel of the kingdom. And he says, here's what this kingdom that I'm bringing looks like. And then in chapter eight, he begins to walk out when the kingdom comes, it's gonna look like this. So he starts healing people. He heals a leper, heals a centurion servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, casts out demons, calms a storm heals a paralytic, raises a, a dead girl from the grave, right? 
just unbelievable. So he teaches, this is the kingdom, and then he practically demonstrates the power of the gospel of the kingdom. And we miss it, and here's why I think we miss what Jesus is doing. We don't have a vocabulary for kingdom anymore, right? Like who uses the term kingdom or rule or dominion? Like does anyone use those terms anymore? If you're talking to somebody, you meet them and, hey, I live in Grants Pass, where do you live? Walker Road is my kingdom. You'd be like, I don't think I want to know you anymore now. <laughs> hey, what do you do for a living? I rule a Dutch bro stand. Oh, I don't want to work for you, right? Because we just, we soften all these words now. It's, oh, I manage a Dutch bro stand, I run it, right? We don't use kingdom vocabulary anymore. So when Jesus comes proclaiming this kingdom, I think, we, st- we, don't, we just skip right over it. Like, I don't even know what he's talking about. Doesn't matter, let's get in. But when we miss what Jesus is bringing right here, the gospel of the kingdom, we don't understand the next three chapters unless you understand the need for the good news of a kingdom. So you actually gotta back up and look at what does kingdom mean? And where in scripture do we find the very first mention of kingdom rule Dominion, where do we find that? Genesis 1. Someone said it. Genesis 1. So God creates, right? Step by step by step. Creates, says it's good, it's good, it's good. Time out in heaven. Holy huddle. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Let us make man in our image. And here's what he says about his image bearers. It's Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. You might have rule there. What's dominion? Unless you're making voting machines that may or may not count, (laughs) dominion is a kingdom term, right? Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth. What did God just say to his image bearers? He says, you guys are my kings and my queens. It's King Adam and Queen Eve that God creates. Genesis 1, I did that a couple Wednesdays ago. God creates a really good piece of real estate. Over and over, seven times he says, this place is good. He takes humans created in his image. And he says, you guys now rule over this really good piece of real estate, the kingdom of Eden. Rule like I rule, rule in my image, the way that I rule the cosmos. I want you to bring that same rule down here to this good piece of real estate called the kingdom of Eden. Show how I rule, demonstrate it, look like me. That the clearest view earth is supposed to get of God, you know what it is? It was supposed to be a human, that you could look at a human and say, oh, that's what God is like, because they're his image bearer, and they're ruling under his authority the way that he would rule. So this is the kingdom of Eden with King Adam and Queen Eve. But here's the question, how do they know how to rule? What's supposed to be subdued? How are they supposed to do this, right? How are they supposed to know how to rule in a way that actually images God correctly? Have you asked that question about yourself ever? 
in areas that you're supposed to have dominion over? Has, as a parent, have you ever said, man, how do I do this parenting thing? How do I have dominion over these little rascals? I mean, these little kids, how do I do this? Man, I have, how do I do this well? Your marriage, your job, your own self. How do I rule myself? How do I subdue these things in my own self that seem to rise up and own me? How do I do that? Where do you go for the rules to rule? Do we turn to Instagram? Do we turn to a self-help book? Do we turn to a guru? Because if you really look at humanity, we've all been asking that question for a long time. How do we rule well? Because sometimes we're out of control. Do we look inside ourselves? Do we do Stuart Smalley? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like me. Is that what we do? Because it's been happening for a long time. Like, how do we rule well? So you have that question right here, right at the beginning. How do we rule well? Well, Genesis 1 is telling us something. When over and over God says he creates on day one and the refrain after every day is what? And God saw that it was good. Seven times good. What is Genesis 1 telling King Adam and Queen Eve? If you want to know what is good, who do you ask? God, right? But there's an option in the garden, isn't there? You don't have to ask God what's good. You can choose to eat of this tree. That's the knowledge of good and evil. So there's a dilemma there inside the kingdom of Eden. There's a dilemma right away. Who do we listen to? Who do we talk to? How do we learn the good? Right? That dilemma is built into day one. Seven times God says, I know what's good, but you can choose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and decide for yourself. So what we find out is the kingdom of Eden is royally screwed because humans have this conflict in us, don't we? We have this conflict where instead of going to the one that actually knows what's good, the one that knows the right way, the one that knows how to rule and subdue correctly, what do we do all the time? We choose for ourselves. We think for ourselves. I feel this way. I just want to do this. I like this, right? So there's a conflict. You see it right away. So what happens to these first image bearers? The first rulers of the kingdom. Turn to page three, right? They've got a choice. You can go to God and find out what's good, or you can eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and choose for yourself. So a serpent shows up on page three, and this is what he says to them. But the serpent said to the woman, Queen Eve, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. What are they already? Like God, right? The closest you got to God on earth was a human because we are created in the very image of God. What were they already? <laughs> Image bearers, they are already like God, knowing good and evil. Here's what happens. The image bearers forget their identity. They forget who they are. And whenever you and I forget our identity, Satan will make one for you immediately and give it to you. When you and I forget who we are, Satan creates a new identity for us and gives it to us. When we forget 
what we're created to be and who we're to live like and what we're to look like, man, Satan gives us one. You're a sex goddess, go act like it, right? You have authority and rule. You tell them what you're gonna do and you make them listen to you. And if they don't listen to you, take violence on them, right? You're an addict and you'll never be anything better than an addict. You're a victim. You'll never be loved. No one will ever love you. Just end it. See, Satan is waiting for all these built up identities. The moment you and I forget our own, the serpent comes up and says, I'll give you one. I'll give you one. And it's always based on brokenness. See, we have a really good theology of original sin. We're depraved. We're terrible. We're failures. What we forget is original glory. That's why I did Psalm 8. You forget you were created in the very image of God, that you are still an image bearer of God. Don't forget that because the moment you do, man, Satan gives you a broken identity. And what happens instead of going to God and figuring out what's good, we turn to ourselves or the serpent to figure out what's good. And they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a serpent wraps around the human heart in Genesis 3 and injects poison in the humans from this point forward. So how does the story go? Page four, what happens in page four? Cain and Abel, do they rule well? No, what happens? Cain murders his brother, Abel. That's page four. Kingdom of Eden is broken really quick. Page four, brother kills brother, but it gets worse. At the end of page four, there's this guy named Lamech. Lamech is a lamo. Listen to Lamech. Genesis 4, 23. Lamech said to his wives, what's the problem here? Right? <laughs> wives, what did God say? One man, one woman, one life, right? Page two, what's already happened by page four? Polygamy. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. What in the world? Lamech kills a man and then writes a song about it, right? That's what's happening right here. I mean, it's crazy. Like, who talks this way anyways? Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. Imagine if I did that. Charity, hear my voice. You wife of Matt, listen to what I say. What's gonna happen to me, right? I mean, it's nutty. That's what it's telling us has happened by page four. These image bearers that we're supposed to be going to God to find out what's good. Instead, they turn to themselves for what's good and evil, and it gets bad. You got this arrogant polygamist, who's violent. He's grabbing women like property now. Instead of one man, one woman, one life, he sees women like property. He sees other men like competition that must be eliminated. The mark put on Cain was to protect him. The mark that Lamech takes is a badge of honor. I'm a murderer, right? That's what's happened by just page four to the two that were supposed to be image-bearing God correctly, going to him for what's good and right. They chose, no, we're gonna decide for ourselves. We're gonna eat of the tree and decide what's good and what's bad. It's terrible, right? What's happening to the kingdom right here? 
It's crumbling, is it not? So what's the next event? It's called a flood. That things get so bad, read the beginning of Genesis chapter six. Things get so bad and so violent and so terrible. Here's God's evaluation of his image bearers. It's Genesis 6, 5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When we say, no, I don't want God's good way. And we say, I'll figure it out for myself what's good and what's evil. I'll eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'll decide this is what happens. It's evil continually. Women are property. Harems get created, just giant, you know, here, glorifying violence and murder. Vengeance begins vengeance, just wickeder and wickeder and wickeder. So God says, okay, I'm gonna start over. And the flood happens. And eight people, only eight people are protected and brought through the flood. And after the flood, check this out. Perhaps you have not seen this. It's chapter eight, floods happen, eight people left. Here's what happens, Genesis 8, 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. What? God, was the flood a good answer to what was happening on earth? It was. It was that bad. What does God say here though? Did it fix it? No, what does God say? I'm not gonna flood the earth again. Why? Because men are evil. What is God saying right there? He's saying, if I keep on flooding the earth, no one will survive it because man is evil. My image bearer, that I wanted to image bear me well, my image bearer that was supposed to come to me to find out what is good, they're, they're evil. And if I was to keep flooding the earth, no one's going to make it through, right? How crazy is that? This is what happens when humans decide for themselves what's good and what's evil, instead of looking to God, we're doomed. So what's God gonna do, right? His rulers, his humans are unreliable, and let's be honest, kind of stupid, right? That's what we've seen. We're just on page eight. They've been unreliable and not very wise, kind of stupid. So what does God do? Well, in the Old Testament, God starts to make these covenants with his people. And they're really, really important to understand these if you're gonna know why we need the good news of the kingdom, right? Look, we'll look at a covenant in Genesis 15. This is one of the high points in the Bible. This guy named Abram that leaves his country, comes and follows God. God tells him, hey, you're gonna have this land. You're gonna have a bunch of heirs. You're gonna have a bunch of kids. He's now 85 years old in Genesis 15. His wife is 76 and they've got no kids. Giant problem, right? So here's the conversation between Abram, later it becomes Abraham and God. Genesis 15:1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue 
childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, I know you're 90, so you may not be able to see him. It's okay. Try to count them if you can. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram, I don't care that you're old and your wife is old. It doesn't matter. You're going to have a child. What does Abram say to this? Verse six. And he believed Yahweh, covenant name of God there. And God counted it to him as righteousness, which has happened in that verse. This is a high point in scripture. You finally have an image bearer that is trusting that God has the good way. And he's saying, okay, the word believe there is simply amen in the Hebrew. God said, hey, this is what I'm gonna do for you. And Abraham just says, amen. And God says, perfect. I'm waiting for a human like that, that believes me and trusts me that I have the good way and I know how to make it happen. Okay, all Abram does, doesn't make a big religious ceremony, doesn't hike up Mount Everest, doesn't have to do a quest, just simply says, amen. And God says, brilliant. If we are charismatic, we jump out of our seats. We're Edgewater, so just smile. It's that good. (laughs) This is the high point. Finally, a human that's starting to get it. You don't have to go and do it on your own. Trust me. Believe my goodness. Believe I can do this for you. Right? So you got probably the Alps of the Old Testament. But look what happens just a minute later. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. Remember, he just believed God. Okay, all right. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Right? From the top of faith, amen to, now, I don't know. I don't know if you can do this, Lord. Isn't that humans? (laughs) Right? Isn't this just humans? So what does God do? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other. Here's what's happening. This was an ancient way of making a covenant. So what would happen is you'd get these animals, You would cut these animals in half. You'd set half the animal uh, uh, like a mirror to each other. You'd make a path between all the animals. One party would start on one end. The other party would start on the other end. And you would walk together and meet in the middle of these cleaved open, bloody, gutty animals. And you'd say, I am covenanting to keep my word. And if I don't keep my word, make me like one of these animals. Cleave me in half. It was the most serious way in the ancient way you could make a covenant. How crazy is that? Imagine going to the bank to get a loan and they bring a cow and a chainsaw. All right, let's do it. You'd be like, I don't think so after all. 
Like, I'll just take the credit check and signing my name 400 times. That's better, right? Imagine if marriages were this way. Instead of flowers and fluff, it's a chainsaw and a cleaved cow. Keep your word. That's what this was saying. This was as serious as you could make. If I don't keep my side of the bargain, cut me in half. That's literally what you were saying. So Abram's like, okay, let's cut covenant. So here's what he does. So he does that. The birds of prey come down on the carcasses. Abram drives them away. He's waiting for God to show up. Let's meet in the middle. Let's cut covenant. But here's what happens to Abraham. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram. They didn't make it together. Yahweh made it with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land. What just happened right there? God said, I'm gonna go all the way. I'm gonna go all the way. I will not leave the fate of this covenant in a human's hands because what does God know about humans? We're unreliable and not that bright. So what does God say? I don't want Abraham to be cut in half. If this covenant is going to work, it has to be up to me alone. I have to go all the way through, right? And this is the best we have in the Old Testament, Abraham. And what does God say? Unreliable and not that bright. If the covenant's gonna happen, if humans are gonna be saved, if they're gonna take the rightful place as kings and queens once again, I've gotta go all the way. The covenant cannot be relied on, given to humans because they're unreliable and not smart. You're beginning to see now why we need a new gospel of a kingdom. And the Old Testament is giving us the picture for that, right? So here's another, another covenant. This is Exodus 19. God has saved the Israelites from a pharaoh, a, a maniac that's slaughtering their babies. 10 mighty plagues, plucks them out of there, brings them out into the wilderness. And God says, I want to make a covenant with you. I want you guys to be the new image bearers, the new kings and queens. So God says this to them, tell the people of Israel, Exodus 19.3, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, trusting I know what's good, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? They talk to God. What's a kingdom? A place where kings and queens rule. God's now expanding. You're going to be the kind of people that are priestly. You come to me. You talk to me. You're in relationship with me so that it gives you the good way to rule my kingdom, right? That's what God's saying right here. So God gives the nation of Israel 613 ways of ruling correctly. Here's how you do it. Here's the good way to rule. It's the Old Testament law. And what happens to the people when they hear this? Here's what they say, Exodus 19. All the people answered together and said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. <laughs> really? <laughs> if you know the Bible, you go, oh no, no, you won't, right? 
That's not gonna happen that way. You may think that's gonna happen that way. It's not gonna happen that way because humans are unreliable and not very smart. And we look to ourselves and we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we reap this destruction. And what you see from Exodus 19 all the way through, the, through Babylon is unreliable, unwise people, just showering destruction. That's why people say, man, the Old Testament is bloody. Yeah, bro. I know, because people are that way, because we're unreliable and not very wise. And we don't rule very well, right? So you got one more covenant and then we'll jump in to Jesus. So there's this guy named David. He's a pretty good king, blows it at some point, but he has this idea. He lives in a palace, God's box, it's called the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence was on, was in a tent. So David says, I want to make a house, a palace, a temple for God. And here's God's response to him. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 2 Samuel 7, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and I have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. David's like, I'm gonna do this for God. What does God say? No, I'm gonna do this for you. And what is God gonna do? Well, the next verse. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. You're not gonna make me a house. I'm gonna make you a house. Why does God say that? Because humans are unreliable and not that bright. And we make all these promises and pledges and what happens? We don't end up doing them because humans are unreliable and not that smart. We don't have the wisdom. We don't know the good way. We eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and we make poor decisions so often in life. So God says, no, it's not gonna happen that way, David. God knows about what's coming for David where he's unreliable and not very smart with a woman named Bathsheba. God knows that. So instead, God says this, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who is this promised offspring? Was it Solomon? Was Solomon wise, reliable, and smart? He was wise, Proverbs. Was he reliable? He got idols. Was he smart? He had a real woman problem, like a thousand women problem, right? So no, it wasn't Solomon. Who's the eternal kingdom? Well, the only one that fulfills this is Jesus. So all that is going into Jesus coming in Matthew chapter four and saying, listen, I'm bringing the kingdom. Here's what we have. God is so committed, so committed to you and me. God is so committed to us that he becomes one of us, the only reliable, wise human, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than David, where all of them failed, Jesus is going to be the reliable, wise one that demonstrates what the kingdom actually looks like. He's the only one that all the Old Testament is pointing to. We need somebody that can actually be the right king, that can do the right things, that can rule in the right way because we haven't seen it yet because humans 
are unreliable and not very wise. So Jesus comes as the one. And the only question is this, will we listen to him? Do we believe that Jesus brings the good way or do we go back and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is a choice all of us have to make? Will I choose what I like, what I feel, what I think? Or do we become people that say, actually, I don't do very well. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is destruction. That I'm going to Jesus to find out the good and the right way. That every time I choose for myself, I see the end is destruction, just like the Old Testament shows me. I end up in Babylon, a Babylon of my own making. And so I wanna be somebody that becomes a disciple, a follower of King Jesus, that trusts him. And that's the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus brings the constitution of the kingdom. The kingdom that I'm bringing is gonna look very different than the kingdoms of old. It looks very different. And here's what I'm gonna tell you. We're not gonna get into it today, but when we start into the Sermon on the Mount, you gotta know this. Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. You will be offended. That when you read the gospels, nobody responded to Jesus like this. Eh, he's all right. Nobody, right? It's either they run in fear from him, fall down and praise him, or murderously hate him. No one's like, nah, he's all right. No one. Because Jesus brings a whole new way of living that I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, you'll be offended, right? Like liberals love part of Jesus. They'll quote his, love your neighbor as yourself. They'll quote, turn the other cheek, right? Love that stuff. They'll quote, look, he said to the rich guy, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. But man, they do not like Jesus's ethics on sex. One man, one woman, one life. Sex is only allowable inside the covenant of marriage. One man, one wife, nowhere else. They don't like that at all. Like, huh? They don't like when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Oh, that's so exclusive. You can't say that. There's many paths to God. Not according to Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life. You get offended. On the other side, right? It's the sexual ethic. Hey, that's great. One man, one woman, one life. Hey, we love that. We love the Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one way. We love that. But man, we'll get offended when Jesus says to the rich guy, sell everything you have and give it away. But I worked hard for my money. Yeah, you may have, but you also had a lot of opportunity that people haven't had. Imagine if you were born in the 13th century in Tibet. Would you have your MBA then? Probably not. Would you have your business then? Nope, you'd be a peasant. So we also have to acknowledge, like, oh, okay, Jesus is gonna offend you in the Sermon on the Mount, in the gospel of the kingdom. Because we have this idea inside of us that we have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we know you're gonna hold on to that for destruction, or you're gonna realize as a human, I've been unreliable and unwise, and I didn't need a king to show me the right way. I know that, okay? You'll be offended. And I get, I offend people. Like some people are passive aggressive. I'm aggressive aggressive, I get that. And I'll apologize when I offend people. Ah, that was me, I'm sorry. But I'll never offend, I'll never apologize when Jesus offends you because we all need to be offended in some way. 
We've all eaten at some point of the tree. We've all had that serpent wrap around our heart and inject its venom into us saying, this is the way to rule. And it's incorrect. And the goal for all of us is one thing, to be conformed to the image of the son, Romans 8, 29. That's my goal. The only question is, as we go through this is, will we listen to him? Will we listen? I know my decisions have brought pain and agony and destruction, just like every other human. Jesus' decisions, his kingdom ethic brings peace, brings goodness, brings abundance.